been called the greatest director, the greatest writer, and the greatest producer in the history of radio. That by Ray Bradbury. Charles Kuralt called him the poet laureate of radio. In the 1940s, Norman Corwin was the premier writer and producer of radio theater. He created some of the most important programs of the time. In addition to programs such as The Columbia Workshop and 26 by Corwin, he was the obvious person to write and create a program commemorating important events during World War II. These programs featured many of the biggest stars of the time, such as Edward G. Robinson, Orson Welles, Jimmy Stewart, Rudy Valley, Lionel Barrymore, Walter Houston, and even in one case, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. His 1941 work, We Hold These Truths, was a celebration of the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. But with a broadcast date of December 15, 1941, just eight days after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, it took on a new sense of poignancy and urgency. Most famous of all was his broadcast on a note of triumph, which aired on VE Day, May 8, 1945. This is considered by those who heard it to be possibly the finest work ever written for radio. It not only celebrated the Allied victory in Europe, but started the nation thinking forward to the hard road of rebuilding and the eternal struggles to prevent future atrocities. A documentary, A Note of Triumph, The Golden Age of Norman Corwin, is one of four films nominated for Best Documentary Short Subject for this weekend's Oscars. We uh, traveled to Los Angeles, as mentioned, for this interview. Mr. Norman Corwin, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. Sir, you've had an interest in, in poetry from, from very early. I read in my research here that you once, working as a reporter, turned in a report of a football game in verse. I choose at this late stage not to remember that. <laughs> I would I'd like to see that reporting personally. So would I, but I, I may have destroyed it. And as I recall, it wasn't too bad. It was, it was a, a, a brash idea to begin with. When you first went to work at CBS, you were given complete creative control. I think that people, something that still astounds people this many years later. Um, you produced some from very early classics right off the bat. One of them was called The Plot to Overthrow Christmas. This led to a visit to you by a fellow CBS employee, Edward R. Murrow. He wanted to meet and thank you. Can you talk a bit about your friend, Ed Murrow? The first original script that I wrote for CBS was The Plot to Overthrow Christmas. And that happened because the program, a weekly program, fell on Christmas Day. And uh, a publicity man was attached to my unit, and he had to send out notice, notification in advance of programs that were upcoming. And he said, uh, your program falls on Christmas Day. And I said, it does. And he said, yes. Are you going to do a Christmas show? And I said, I haven't thought that far ahead, but uh, since you mentioned it, uh, it's a possibility. Uh, so he said, well, we, we've got to give it a title. We can't say just a Christmas show for the listings. So I said, how about the plot to overthrow Christmas? And he said, you mean it? And I said, well, it's as good as anything else. So I had my first line, which was, have you heard about the plot to overthrow Christmas? And the second line was, was well, gather ye now from Maine to the Isthmus of Panama and listen to the story of the utter and glory of some gory goings on in hell. 
Now, it happened in Hades, ladies and gentlemen, and so forth. Well, have you seen Good Night and Good Luck? Yes, I have seen it. And not only did I see it, but I was on a symposium with George Clooney and, uh, uh, and the, the dean of the School of Journalism of USC, and uh, I was called upon to recall, first to comment on the picture, which I liked very much, and uh, to recall the meeting with Ed Murrow, one that you've already mentioned. And when I wrote this play, the, it was the first original script I'd written for CBS, I hoped that as a freshman from the Boonies, uh, it would be noticed by the veterans among whom I was uh, keeping company. And uh, nobody seemed to, uh, nobody said, caught your show last night, liked it. And I was a little bit downcast, uh, uh, thinking, what does it take to be noticed on this, on this 18th floor? CBS, when there was a knock on my door, and I opened it, and there stood Edward R. Murrow. And even then, he was London chief for CBS, but he explained that he was in, he and Mrs. Murrow were in town for the holidays, and that they both caught my program last night, and they had to look me up. Well, that was a wonderful introduction to a great figure. And it began a friendship that lasted into the late years. And indeed, uh, Morrow, at one time, my wife and I wanted to adopt a boy, a little, an infant. And uh, the Adoption Bureau required a letter of reference. And I thought, who better to ask than Ed Morrow? And he wrote a marvelous letter of, in, uh, of, in, uh, of reference that, that succeeded. And uh, I, owe, I owe the uh, paternity, <laughs> uh, the adoptive paternity of my son to Edward R. Murrow. So uh, you found that movie to be true to the spirit of, of the Murrow that you knew? True to the spirit of the Murrow I knew, but limited by the, uh, by the dimensions of the film from uh, giving us his London years during the, the war years where I was fortunate enough to uh, share his office in London because I was sent over to do a series called An American in England during the war and shared the, the, shared the uh, office space with, with Ed. So even in the 40s, you were sort of trying to expand Americans' view. I know we're often criticized as being a nation that looks inward, but do you feel that uh, there's been some improvement in that over the decades? No, I think there's been a, a recession when we look uh, abroad, we look with astigmatism, or worse. And uh, the idea of this nation uh, undertaking a preemptive war, which had to be sold like, a, like merchandise, uh, bothers me very much. You wrote a book in 1983 uh, titled Trivializing America. How did you feel that America is trivialized, and, and what can we do about that? I think that there has been a mediocritization of American values, a steadily increasing and pernicious. And uh, I said at the time that this book was published that I hoped 
I would be proven wrong on every page. That hope has not been realized. And we now uh, trivialize even war. Uh, I think the, our preemptive war in, uh, in Iraq uh, is, is a, a trivialization of American democracy and American, American standards. Uh, the, the fact that we should, we should uh, replicate the effrontery of Japan, which uh, attacked us in a preemptive war, that we should honor that act, uh, especially when it had to be sold and had to be manipulated. And uh, I, I think that many of the things that are enacted, that have been enacted by uh, both houses of Congress uh, in the current administration are deplorable and dangerous. We uh, went to war assuming that uh, Iraq has weapons, uh, too many weapons of mass destruction, when we, as a nation, have the most weapons of mass destruction. And nobody is uh, complaining. I am, for one, uh, want a secure America, but I don't think it should be uh, achieved the way it has been. That security has been achieved. Nor do I think it is uh, a safe security. Well, can we talk a little bit about uh, about uh, the fifties and 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 now the shadow of McCarthy? Uh, you did famous World War II programs. We hold these truths and on a note of triumph, uh, celebrating the best that America strives to be. These were certainly patriotic programs. That yet even you fell under the shadow of McCarthy. Can you talk about uh, the times then and the administration's current? Either you're with us or you're against us. Sort of attitude. Yes, I can talk about it and will. I was uh, a liberal, and in those days, thanks to Joe McCarthy and others of his ilk, uh, any any liberalism of any sort was suspect, and uh, that was proved proven one day when experimentally uh, somebody stood on on Madison Avenue try, trying to give away copies of the American Bill of Rights. Nobody touched it. Uh, and I was, uh, I was a, a liberal, and uh, CBS was liberal. And that's why when the, when the pressure got uh, very hard to bear, CBS was one of the worst. Uh, offenders, since they felt uh, an aura of guilt around them. Yeah, I, I read of Bill Paley uh, really sort of not backing up Murrow, and it was sort of, many people have pointed out that the movie Good Night and Good Luck tells a very interesting episode surrounding Milo Radulovich, etc., but yet this was rather late in the game. It was late in the game, yeah. And uh, Bill Paley had very good instincts at least the early Bill Paley that I knew, they not only tolerated me, but they they never bothered to take ratings of my programs. And I was up against Bob Hope, who was then the 
number one program in all radio, and CBS didn't care. They, they felt that Hope's audience and my audience were mutually exclusive, and uh, they went along. But uh, let me give you an example of what I mean by the liberality of that network. Uh, toward the end of the war in Europe, the acting president, uh, the acting program manager of CBS came to me and said, will you interrupt the series you are now doing and have ready for broadcast on the night of victory in Europe, an hour broadcast, we will sequester an hour of prime time, take it away from a sponsor and give it to you. Now, they did not say uh, how, what will your approach be? They did not ask how much will it cost? They did not ask who will you cast? And they did not uh, specify that I turn in the first 20 pages. And the first that the brass heard of that program was when it was on the air. Now, that, that kind of freedom exists nowhere in broadcasting, here or abroad, today. Five years after they, this, this program was done, that kind of freedom was, was denied any writer. I read, too, that, uh, that CBS had a policy of what they called sustaining programs, such as yours, uh, th- things they were striving to, be, to produce excellence on, and they weren't, in those cases, con- concerned so much about sponsorship. They issued a pamphlet in which they took pride in, in blocking out certain times they said, reserved from sale. Wow. Can you imagine? These days I cannot. <laughs> right. Can you comment on what, what you think we should expect of a media in times of turmoil? The media has come under a lot of criticism of late for sort of rolling over for a lot of what's going on. I believe that criticism is justified. I think it is irresponsible of media to take handouts from any administration, whether it's uh, one led by Franklin Roosevelt or George W. Bush. It's, it's amazing, the manipulation. Right, right. In radio's golden era, there were some fabulous programs that people tuned in every night. They had huge ratings, Jack Benny's program, Fred Allen, uh, uh, dramas like Night Beat. Which ones were your favorites? Well, I must say that I was very fond of Fred Allen, and uh, that was traceable to the fact that he liked my programs <laughs> and, in, and indeed invited me to come on one. And there was a... Uh, a wonderful spoofing program in which uh, uh, Fred interviewed me. And uh, he was a a charmer. He was uh, next, I shouldn't say next to, but but equally uh, intellectual for a a man who's specialized in comedy. Uh, He was a bright man and interested in literary and and subjects beyond his expected ken. The other uh, companion to that classification in Allen was Groucho Marx, who had uh, an extended correspondence with T.S. Eliot. <laughs> and with you, I might add. Allen's Alley turned up in Norman Corwin production. 
Yeah, uh, Minerva Pius and Ken, uh, forgotten his name, they, they were actors, uh, very good actors, whom I enjoyed working with myself. Do you think much of satellite radio and, and some of the, the old programming that they're uh, re-airing and their potential? Well, I wish them well, but I do wish they would select uh, others than Howard Stern to pay a, ha a half billion dollars to. Could you comment on some of the, the great performers? We mentioned a few already that, that, that you've directed. I think of like Paul Robeson and, and Orson Welles, and you, you, you directed some of the greats. I had the good fortune to direct some of the greats, and I will be forever grateful to them. I enjoyed working with Lawton, with uh, Frederick March, uh, with Ruth Gordon, with Elsa Lanchester, in the theater with Betty Davis, and Groucho Marx, of course, and Orson Welles. And one of my prized trophies uh, is a telegram from Orson at the height of his fame, saying, can I be on your program next week? You found a place for him. The Marine Corps to pry that letter from me. <laughs> I came along at a time when there wasn't much in the way of literate or, or uh, radio writing that attempted what I was attempting to do, which was a respect for language and a respect for ideas and uh, concepts. And because of that, actors like Groucho and, uh, and Jimmy Stewart would be on my shows for scale. Mm -hmm. They didn't demand uh, Their commercial fees were around, uh, average around $10,000 in appearance, and they would work for $200 or after scale, because they want to do, and they wanted to exercise uh, their own talent on language, on ideas. I was lucky there, because nobody else was doing it in, in, the, in the whole damn medium. And I, ha I am, have to be eternally grateful to CBS for allowing me to do that, and not you know, looking over my shoulder. It, it remains quite famous in, in, in the annals of broadcasting, Mr. Corman, that in 1941 you produced weekly shows that depended only upon what emerged from your typewriter. Do you have a secret uh, for all of us, really, on how one might fight writer's block? Yes. Uh, have a, a deadline to del every week to deliver a complete play and have your name on it. That series was called 26 by Corwin, and that's a possessive title. And it was very rare in radio. I may have been the only one who carried that at that time, the only writer. And uh, I would have broken both legs to have each program as good as I could make it. And I did not always succeed, but that was my goal. And uh, the the uh, secret of it is to give up everything else. You don't go to a movie, you don't go to a play, you don't go to the beach. You work and work and work. And I retreated to a uh, little uh, uh, copse 
in the on the west bank of the Hudson, about 20 miles from the city. And I rented, I cut off all my ties in the city, in the city itself. And I would have, uh, I would have a secretary pick up my pages and take them to the composer. I had live composers, live music for each program, and to the casting director with, you know, reserving the, uh, reserving the talents of stars uh, when I could get them. And it, uh, it was uh, six months of uh, sentencing myself to hard labor. Was it the, tu the toughest six months of your life? Yeah, it, it was the toughest. But I loved what I was doing, which made it possible. When do you know when you're finished with a piece? I did not have that privilege of knowing. And many, many a program I rewrote portions, portions of it in a rehearsal break. So it was right up to the, to the clock. Really comes down to like you have an airtime, and that's really ultimately when you're finished. That's right. Is there something that, that you, 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 you've never yet done which you would still like to do in radio or, or otherwise? If I had the years back, I would like to do another 26 by Corwin. I just love that medium. I'm drawn to it as a muralist is to a blank wall. And uh, I, I enjoyed working at it, which I hope... Uh, was apparent in, in the product. You've written in the past about how uh, you're fond of, of what the ear, the story that comes to you through the ear rather than television being chained to images, which have to be sort of action, action, action. Yes, well, uh, I believe to this day that the ear is the master's organ, that it is through the ear, not the eye, that we perceive Beethoven, and uh, Bach, and Brahms, and the rest of that great hierarchy of uh, composers. And after all, let's face it, human communication did not begin with the printed word or the written word. It began with grunts, with, uh, with uh, indications, vocal indications of what there was out there to be hunted and, uh, and the approach of an enemy. Uh, and song and speech were, were for the ear, not for the eye. Printing came much later, and thank God it did come. But uh, the, think the difference between the eye and the ear in the perception of space broadcasting uh, is perhaps illustrated by the fact that there was no term in radio the equivalent of boob tube and couch potato. Yeah. Because the ear obliges you to collaborate with the program that you're hearing, with the writer, with the actor. Many people consider any of, of some of the various programs that you produce to be uh, at or near the pinnacle of, of radio broadcasts. What, what would you personally choose as some of the greatest broadcasts ever? I think that I am not alone in choosing 
the program that, that was ready on the night of victory in Europe called, called uh, uh, On the Note of Triumph. And indeed, there is a nominated documentary, an Academy-nominated documentary. Uh, this we are speaking, uh, we are conversing uh, less than two weeks from the time of the award show, but it's a documentary about me, uh, given the floral title of uh, A Note of Triumph, A Note of Triumph, the golden age of Norman Corwin. Well, to have a golden age in your pocket is, uh, is quite a privilege, and I, I take that honor very seriously. <laughs> we'll be pulling for you on Oscar night, and I'm quite tickled to note for our audience that uh, as we speak here in your, in your living room, and so nice of you to, to invite us in, that uh, the Reuters will be calling, that you're getting three interviews today. Yes, right. And uh, I, I would think that the, the interest is wonderful. What can we look forward to, to you producing next? I have another book in me, uh, which my publisher is hounding me about. And uh, that book is on the unexpected subject of prayer. Of wow. prayer. Uh, I want to call it the uncommon book of prayers. There's a wonderful story, Mr. Corwin, you, uh, that I, I hope we can share with our audience of how you were uh, a young man, uh, new, newly signed on at CBS, working in the CBS building uh, on an upcoming pilot for a series you, you were embarking on when Wells does his famous War of the Worlds broadcast. I had followed the War of the Worlds, that Orson Welles broadcast, the Martian invasion. Uh, that immediately followed uh, Orson's War of the Worlds. I didn't know what was going on in the, in the studio beneath, directly beneath my own. And I found out later that Orson had emptied the living rooms of America and uh, that nobody could have heard my program. And I had a friend in master control whom I called the next day and said, how late did the calls keep coming in? He said, well, the last call came in at around two in the morning. And I said, that late? And what was the nature of that call? He said, well, it was from a, a man that was probably a truck driver in New Jersey. And uh, he, I said, what was the conversation like? And he said, well, he, he said, uh, is this the station that broadcasted that program about Mars? And the uh, master control man said, yes, it is, said wearily at two in the morning. He said, well, I want to tell you something, mister. My wife heard that program, and she got so excited, she opened the door and she fell down a whole flight of stairs. Jeez, it was a wonderful program. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Norman Carwin. I hope we may do this again. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. We're podcast on the internet at radioparallax.com. Mm-hmm.